gorgeous. Okay, Tanshi, bonjour, hello, folks. It's been a hot minute since we have released an episode on Educate the Earth's research time. Um, but I'm very happy and thankful to be able to do so today with such a, an amazing person that I've been uh, privileged to meet within my PhD coursework. And this is Lisa. Um, Lisa and I just recently met um, within this past uh, academic semester. And the conversation that we're going to be holding today is centered in a coursework <laughs> that is for a class assignment. But needless to say, at the same time, too, I think it's gorgeous with our ability to just be able to still come together, even with the the ability to to share our ideas, our thoughts, our experiences in regards to academic articles in these ways. So it just very much is a is a privilege to be able to speak with Lisa today. Um, so with this, uh, I am situated upon Treaty 7 territory of the Nisitapi of the Blackfoot Confederacy, which belongs to Suksuga, Gaina, Bugani, Sitana, Yehe Nakoda Nations, and also this home and place is a part of the Northwest Historical Métis homeland, of which I proudly belong to. Um, our conversation today, too, is going to be rooted in uh, the integral pieces of what is reconciliation, but further how we can build relations with one another, um, coming from two separate points of views and worldviews and how we can move forward, uh, which is very beautiful, I think, in the context of the article that we're gonna be talking about today too. Lisa, would you like to offer a land acknowledgement to, to where you're located? I would definitely like to. Thanks very much for the opportunity. So I'm here in Ottawa, and I would like to recognize the Algonquins of the, as the customary keepers and defenders of the Ottawa Valley tributaries and its watershed. And um, just to say that Ottawa is built on the unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe territory who lived here for a millennia and that I myself honor all First Nations, Inuit and Métis for their valuable contributions, both past and present to this land. And as a settler in Ottawa, I'm very grateful for the clean water and the beautiful land on which I raise my family and lay my words down today. Mm. Oh, that's gorgeous. Merci so much. I think with the importance of land acknowledgements too, it's so integral to share your relationality to the land too, just as much mm -hmm. as it's important to, to share who has come before and who's still here. Um, so yeah. showing that piece is really, really just gorgeous. Merci for that. I really appreciate that. Definitely. Thank you. Awesome. Well, for for uh, for folks who will be listening to this interview, who are our uh, schoolmates, um, <laughs> my name is Madeline McCracken. I am Red River Mitchett. Um, I am a PhD graduate student, first year. Um, I am a daughter, I am a sister, I am a partner, I am a dog lover, coffee lover. Um, I, <laughs> I build relations with my heart on my sleeve and I, I really do appreciate this again, this opportunity to uh, share um, this uh, conversation with Lisa. And Lisa, would you like to introduce yourself to two folks? Sure. I'm also a PhD student in my first year and in my first semester of coursework. And like you said, Madeline, we met virtually through our course. And um, I just want to say thanks so much for your openness and your willingness to share 
your knowledge and it's just really enriched my life so far and my understanding of Indigenous worldviews. So thank you very much for that. And uh, myself, I'm a cisgender white woman who is really driven to make adult literacy in Ontario equitable and accessible to Black, Indigenous and racialized adults. And I believe that lived experience trumps uh, knowledge and that I may not be the best person to advocate on behalf of BIPOC, but um, like the spirit bearer that we'll talk about later, I see injustice. And so I'm leveraging my personal and my professional positions to raise the voices of others and hold difficult conversations with policymakers. Wow. Merci for, for sharing um, the work that you're doing because it involves all of us. I think with being able to work work with these um, aspects together, especially in calls for injustice and for reconciliation to it, mm -hmm. it involves us definitely. all. Yeah, definitely. Perfect. Well, this um, this leads us to our conversation today, which we will be talking about relationality, uh, the breath of life theory, uh, epistemological uh, wayfinding, and positionality. So we also want to offer a preamble too in regards to the text that we will be sharing. Um, it is uh, created by Cindy Blackstock and this is a part of her 2007 work. Within this work, it is um, shared through the lens and conversation surrounding Aboriginal because at this time in 2007, this was the use of how to identify First Nations, Métis, Inuit peoples in relation uh, in what we call Canada. So with this notion, please acknowledge the fact that when we are going to be sharing our conversation today, we will be being more specific to First Nations, Métis, Inuit peoples, because we, uh, we do not use Aboriginal no longer. So because of this notion of evolution and understanding and learning, um, it's also important for us as researchers to be cognizant of this and how to build forward, how to move forward when terminology changes and how we can also appreciate where terminology comes from, but acknowledge when it's no longer used as well. So the use of Aboriginal is still used within legal documents. It's still inside, you know, colonial systems. This is okay. It's just not how we're gonna be moving forward within our conversation today. We'll be more specific and we'll also use the word um, indigenous as this is also a part of my identity too, of which I also appreciate to be called as well. So uh, with this, Lisa, here's our first question. Um, what is our chosen indigenous epistemology and please discuss it. Okay, so we're discussing indigenous worldviews and we're looking at it through the lens of Cindy Blackstock. In 2007, she published The Breath of Life versus the Embodiment of Life, Indigenous Knowledge and Western Research. And she herself is the Executive Director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada, and also a very bold advocate and expert on Indigenous child welfare. Blackstock discusses Indigenous childcare knowledge, the statistics that the number of First Nations children in state care exceeds the number during the residential school era and calls for recentering child welfare through the implementation of Indigenous epistemologies that have been passed on for the past 20,000 years. 
She also stresses that there is a diversity of Indigenous cultures and the fact that challenges the notion that there is a pan-Indigenous worldview. However, having said this, she um, has found commonalities among Aboriginal or in Indigenous ontological beliefs that are divergent from Western epistemologies. So enlisting them, if I may, um, number one, Indigenous people believe ancestral knowledge is correct on most things. Number two, Indigenous people believe knowledge regarding life and land is held in sacred trust for future generations. And thirdly, Indigenous knowledge is situated within more the more expansive concepts of time and space. So from the common beliefs about Indigenous cultures, the concepts of life and ethics emerge, shaping the role, the construction, and also the processes of knowledge. And that's um, Blackstock's finding. For example, Indigenous people believe the future is predictable because knowledge of living and surviving is held in trust by Indigenous people who are the breath of life therefore ensuring future generations. And much like Davis's 2004 use of imagery of the tree to explore the uh, bifurcations of knowledge, the Iroquois Confederacy uses a great white pine. However, instead of focusing on the branches above ground, the Iroquois looked to the base and the four white roots pointing to the four cardinal directions of the earth. This is a relational comparison of trees because such representations offer growth. Both are structurally different, but symbolize understanding in meaning and in growing ways. That's beautiful. I love the conceptualization of the tree and just how connective it can be in regards yeah. to even Davis's work, but then also with Blackstock's work as we see here too. I think with trees, it offers so much opportunities. Mm -hmm. And even within Métis culture too, it's, it's very significant. I think too, with Davis looking at the branches that grow above the ground, um, it's an, a recognition of the, the Western ideology that we build on knowledge. And that is in contrast with the Indigenous worldview, which is the knowledge, um, it comes from ancestors. So mm -hmm. it's, it's the, the the roots below the ground. And because they believe um, that the ancestors were mostly right on most things, <laughs> that, um, that there isn't a real need to build on the knowledge. Right. It's there. Right. Ah, uh, yes, that's it. That's it, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. So I have a question for you. Um, I just want to know what interesting things that you found from reading the text. Thank you. Yeah. So from, from when I read through the text too, I'm quite, um, familiar with the breath of life theory. I think it offers so many ways to recognize epistemologies and acknowledging just how much that even epistemologies can grow as well and the more every single time i read this work i learn something new i see something new in a new way so this this go around <laughs> i was able to to really center on this notion of accountability i think in mm. regards to being 
a responsible researcher. And mm -hmm. it's very different when it comes to responsibility for First Nations, Métis, Inuit folks as researchers doing uh, research protocols and also conducting research in of itself. And we are very careful to acknowledge the fact that when we are doing processes, when we're doing works in relation to identities, cultures, we always need to bring it back to community because we're actually mm -hmm. very responsible to community. Blackstock also shares this too within their work where the whole community in which we exist as Indigenous peoples knows the seven principles we must live and do research by. This can be connected to the seven uh, grandfather teachings. This is a part of my teachings as an elder did share them with me. However, this isn't teachings that are shared across the board to every single Indigenous community as well. So that's just mm -hmm. important to acknowledge. But with this process too, even in regards to ethical research practices and protocols, accountability is also a notion that Blackstock shares within this work. And I think it's really important even within spaces where Western um, protocols of research and even with epistemologies are also represented too, because I think researchers need to be accountable also to the work mm -hmm. that they're doing. I think that's a, it's a fine guiding epistemology rooted again with that growth being centered because you're always ensuring that you're connecting and you're offering and you're learning and you're growing. And through this piece of accountability, you're also being respectful to yourself, your ethics and your ways of moving forward as mm -hmm. well. So I think that's really key inside this work that she presents, but also within other life learnings also yeah. so i think it's very um it's very transformative in that way um just to add on to that too that the notion the western notion of branching out and adding to knowledge um, as an individual is is different than the indigenous approach um, that if you're branching out and you're um, not thinking of the community that you're actually breaking that um, very sacred trust of the knowledge that, um, that that I found that very interesting in Blackstock's work as well. That um, you know, branching out and and um, thinking of yourself as an individual as opposed to part of the community is not something that is is sustainable. In, and you know, it it just is. Um, maybe not frowned upon, but it's um, it's just uh, harmful for the community. Yep, it can be. It can be because that's where the root is talking about doing things in a good way. And yeah. if they're not taking their time, if they're just wanting a publication, like quick and a quick jiffy, and say, for example, some of the research protocols wasn't done in a good way, that would reflect badly on a researcher. And that's not just through indigenous ways, but that's also through Western ways too, where it's important to take your time and to ensure that all voices represented are represented mm -hmm. in such works. So, and it's also about the relations, the relationships you're building too, mm -hmm. and ensuring that they're tended to throughout the whole process as well, depending on, you know, research considerations. So mm -hmm. no, it's, it's, it's very important. I think that's the notion of relationality here is, is really yeah. ensuring that, Hey. Yep. 
Um, I also found it very interesting to look back at the second Indigenous belief about generational knowledge mm -hmm. and the sacred trust to pass on the knowledge. Uh, Blackstock used the term knowledge trustee. I thought that was just a beautiful word, um, a wording for, for such an immense responsibility. And the um, person who is entrusted or the people who are entrusted as knowledge trustees are really imbued with the immense responsibility to ensure that the details of ancestral knowledge are preserved. And in doing so, the values and the spirit of the knowledge is conveyed. So here's a quote that I, I found really beautiful. Um, so the quote starts off, because knowledge needs to echo across lifetimes and generations, multi-dimensional standards of rigor are needed to ensure knowledge is understood within the four dimensions of learning, spiritual, emotional, physical, and cognitive, and that each teaching is situated within the interconnected knowledge web. And so, end quote. So the concept uh, are shared throughout life's milestones through storytelling and teaching, woven into the fabric of dance, stories, music, and role modeling, allowing the learner to explore the different dimensions of knowledge as they reach maturity. And maturity, Blackstock says, is only achieved when two important life purposes are filled. The passing of the knowledge to children and mentoring adults as they transition to become elders. Isn't that amazing? Uh, I, I love the way she writes. I think it's just phenomenal. And it's so relational again. And it's that passing of knowledge and mm -hmm. why we care so much about our youth as well to gain and gather and to learn and to grow and to be nurtured because it's really significant to also offer too with this framework. It's rooted within child welfare um, acknowledgements. So it's not necessarily connected to educational capacities, but yet it is, it still mm -hmm. is. It still is transformational, even inside the ways that we might envision supporting our children, our youth within educational ways. So mm -hmm. it still is able to go beyond that space of that content and that sharing of the knowledge coming from older learners to younger learners but how that process continues. And it's like yes. a cycle, it's a circle where it keeps yes. going and keeps going and keeps going. And inside Blackstock's work too, it's the same representation where it's circular. And that just yes. means it's ever growing and ever changing. And it can yes. be connected too, to, to that life cycle also of how, you know, how we grow, how we you know, evolved too, and how we're a baby, how we're an adult, how we're, you know, and then we become mm -hmm. an, um, an older person and then, and then we pass and we move to spirit world. So even that process too is significant as well in regards to why we care so much about nurturing our youth. And it's because usually the older learners have so much life experience mm -hmm. to share and to be able to nurture and to support with our kids. So that's why it's it's so important to nurture again these relationships, but also offer the fact that, you know, our our elders too are healing. There's mm -hmm. been a lot of impacts. Um, and same with our youth. We're all healing actually. Each and every single one of us are healing in our own way. 
um, due to the impacts of the, of the Indian residential schools, of assimilation, of genocide, of colonization. We're still ever growing, ever learning and healing. And mm -hmm. these processes will always look different for every single person that you talk to. And that deserves its own acknowledgement in that way, because I think healing also like the breath of life theory it's it's just a part of you it's like breathing and it yeah. reminds me of the importance of acknowledging that within ourselves and to honor that within ourselves too so yeah. i care passionately about educating children but i also care passionately about educating teachers so they can support their children in these ways too because they're also taking this role to nurture and to help grow kids so they can grow up in good ways Mm -hmm. So it's it's very connective if folks are also thinking about this with, again, accountability and with responsibility to what they need to do in order to do things in a good way. Um, but that also means for us as researchers too, the work that we're also sharing also need to be rooted in these ways of learning and growing too, because mm -hmm. even as PhDs, we're not all experts like that. <laughs> We're still learning. We're still growing too. And it's important to acknowledge that as well and to keep humble about our positionality yeah. in these days. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one one thing I wanted to do to connect to Davis's work was this the use of imagery. And you were talking about a circle and Blackstock referred to a web. And so if you think about the chapter on uh, the metaphysical in Davis's uh, works and the um, exploration of gnosis versus epistemy and the whole enchantment versus explanation in which he first, um, he looked at the first oral histories that were written and uh, Herodotus the histories was described as the manifestations of timeless realities that were expressed as repetitions and themes. And Davis goes on to say that there may be criticism about the, the way that it was written, that it's non-chronological, that it's, um, it could be looked as, as gossip or myths and allegories that attempt to make sense of human existence. And it's, it sort of harkens to today's present Western views of history and knowledge and how it's compartmentalized, it's chronological, and it's very linear and sequential. And it's, it kind of um, juxtaposes with that imagery of the circle and the web um, because we're often looking at making sense of things now through positionality so the the person who's interpreting what's happening in in our history and and very often it's it's a usually a white male who's elite and this really to me it, it struck me as as very different from the indigenous epistemology of knowledge right right and it's because of this notion of privilege as well and ego Ego is also very big in, in regards to this too, to keep your ego, absolutely. kick it to the curb, just kick it to the yeah, curb, absolutely. get it gone, no need for it, and be humble. Just think about mm -hmm. the fact that you're equal to every single person. And even in regards to 
you know, uh, the relationship and the dichotomy of relationships with uh, in, in university institutions, for example, uh, with professor and students still, it still needs to be equal in ways where we're still learning from each other. There's going to be obviously different aspects of knowledge and understandings and concepts, but that's what keeps us all in that way again in that process of learning and growing mm-hmm. um where as long as we can find it, like an equal ability to acknowledge the fact that, that we're all coming from different spaces different yeah. places but still here for the same reasons that's where we can find that relationality to be able to then come together and to learn together and alongside each other too mm-hmm. so no that's really that's good that you mentioned that too because i think that also needs to be disrupted a bit when it comes to linear yes. learning because life is messy, therefore learning is going to be messy. So of course it's not going <laughs> yeah. to be linear. It's going to, it's going to be different depending on everyone else's experiences too. So it has to be differentiated. Absolutely. Wonderful. And, and so let's get to the personal here. Cause I think when we're talking about such academic ways, academic knowings, um, inside these ways, but just because of the breath of life theory in of itself, it's very holistic. It's very connective, relational understanding, and it's a great epistemology due to this notions. Um, How does this epistemology help you within your navigation of positionality as a researcher? Mm -hmm. So in Ottawa, there are approximately 30,000 plus self-identified First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, yet they're underrepresented in every way in society. And it's the second or it's the largest I believe population in Canada and we shamefully don't have an Indigenous literacy program in Ottawa and for years I've been fighting to raise the Indigenous-led Indigenous-run literacy program in Ottawa because current adult literacy programs fall short of meeting Indigenous learners needs and so I have done some qualitative research to date, but it uh, it certainly wasn't um, to the same rigors of a PhD program, and um, and but yet I was able to gather information that uh, that Indigenous people, when accessing the literacy services, felt othered and unwelcome, and I think that has to do with the neoliberal policies that are in place that really change literacy to to become a commodifiable good which is focused on tasks as opposed to the pursuit of uh, knowledge and and being able to achieve one's potential and use literacies in in very different ways and so people have to identify with employment apprenticeship or secondary or post-secondary school goals and then um, everything is sort of focused on moving that person through uh, a cognitive and performative process to gather, you know, get these outcomes and then there's standardized testing that's used. And so when we are, when I'm looking at the adult literacy programs, I'm thinking this is really not in, in, um, in line with Indigenous values of um, multiple literacies, looking at the spirituality, looking at it holistically and so um, I'm very much motivated to pursue the research to um, 
kind of buttress my no notions that we, we need this literacy in mm -hmm. Ottawa. And um, I do have to be careful because I'm still employed with the ministry, but the data that I presented to them was was really dismissed. And so I need I need this lens in order to do really thorough research that won't be dismissed and will actually um, push these really difficult policy conversations that need to happen and advocate for an indigenous led literacy program. So that's where my research and how this um, approach will certainly enhance the research that I'm going to do. I'm really thankful our paths have crossed here, Lisa. Like it's <laughs> it's so amazing of how passionate and caring you are in regards to this work and how you're navigating it in good ways because mm -hmm. not too many folks would actually take it in good ways. Instead, they'd probably just quit if their ministry wasn't li li like listening to them. But instead you're like, you know what? Let's go get a PhD and let's show them like the actual dad, <laughs> let's show them, let's, you know, yeah. let's Absolutely. do that. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, someone said to me, your research is not bulletproof. And so I thought, okay, well, that's a challenge. You threw down the gauntlet, let's do this. <laughs> let's make it bulletproof. So, yeah, and I think too, like in the truth and reconciliation calls for action, education is a priority. And so this is a way that if, if adult literacy done properly and offered in, in such a complementing way, um, could help people to overcome uh, some of their skills challenges and seek their potential. And so I, I just see this as um, one of the maybe a part of the web, I guess, of, uh, of truth and reconciliation and, and making sure that we're doing whatever we can in order to um, offer this service that could, and it's free, so it could be potentially um, a gateway for someone, right. you know, an opportunity. And so it has to be culturally sensitive and um, using approaches that are Indigenous led. That's beautiful. And that's such a good way to think about it and to move forward within it too. So kachi merci even for, for the work oh. that you're doing. So it, it means a lot. It really does. Yeah. Now, how about you? What, oh what do you think you're... <laughs> <laughs> from your sharing too I just want to offer this as well because I was also in another course with another colleague and and they mentioned such a gorgeous quote and it's tang 2021 okay that's the that's the citation systemic issues require systemic changes and oh, that yeah. oh, <laughs> it was phenomenal to listen to that and to hear that and to be reaffirmed at the fact that each of these conversations are requiring systemic changes but in ways of which we're also navigating such systems so mm -hmm. we are in of itself also a systemic change if if we want to be conceptualized in that way the way that we're even looking at ourselves we're a part of the system so let's be cognizant too of the way that we also want to navigate um, these changes, these understandings, these ways of being, um, and also doing, and that's the action mm -hmm. portion. That's really important here too, especially within the work of reconciliation. 
Um, so, so I just wanted to add that to your, to your sharing as well, just because I think that what the work that you're doing is systemic rooted because of who you're talking to, what you're trying to advocate for. And if they're really wanting to change, they have to change altogether. So it's not, it's, it's so important for folks to be on board and to further recognize again their accountability and yes. their responsibility to to make yes. these changes, especially because of the calls to action to being specifically 62 and 63, uh, which are relational to education. Um, but anywho, I, I digress. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> good digression. <laughs> but for my own work, my own positionality, I think it's important to acknowledge that this theory is from First Nations worldviews. Um, there's aspects with Métis culture, Métis ways of being, knowing, doing. Um, it can be relational as what Blackstock has shared. But I also think about it in the ways where I, I acknowledge the fact that as Métis within my particular family too, we are colonized people. It's because of the process of Métisage, um, where it's two ethnicities coming together and then forming a new culture. So mm-hmm. because of my ancestors being European, um, also French predominantly, um, it's difficult because I acknowledge the fact that I'm sitting in two worlds. I acknowledge the yeah. fact that I'm coming from two different worldviews. And just because of who I am in of itself, it's also navigating this dichotomy, but also this web almost too, mm-hmm. of how to process, acknowledge, learn, respect, and again, be accountable to my community. In order for me to be accountable, I also have to recognize my own positionality. And that yes. is mine. That is mine. So all, alongside with this, like my last name is McCracken. I'm very Irish. And so that's also part of me too. And within my ways though, I've been taught about the Métis Sash. I've been taught about the ways in which it shares different teachings, different ways of conducting yourself forward and to wear the sash is to wear it with responsibility too. So as a researcher, I, I also wear my sash at presentations. I wear my sash in conversations at times too, like either it being with my heart or physically, I will physically wear it, but no matter what, mm-hmm. it's a part of me and it guides me to what I'm mm-hmm. doing to this day. So I relate the theory very much to the sash in regards to accountability because that accountability yeah. piece is really key to me, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the where you said you're you're in both cultures, again, you know, trusting the indigenous worldview of ancestors had it right about most things. No. You know, you're a process, you're a product of those those two knowledge bases and those two um, uh, groups that came together to be one and produce you. And so, you know, I think. Don't think of yourself necessarily as like two different things. It's, it's a beautiful blend. Thank you. Yeah. I think, oh, I appreciate that. Because I think about myself to being woven together with these two yeah. ways. So it's, but it's important to keep that though. Um, I think too, because it helps me keep balance. I have mm-hmm. a balance right now in the way that I think and I feel. Um, so it's important because I'm also very privileged too, because I am white as well and i acknowledge that too where my mom isn't 
And it's so interesting because even though through her color and to who she is, she faced racisms and discriminations where I don't because of the color of my skin, even though we're still of the same blood. So mm. it's very interesting, even in that factor where I'm acknowledging my privilege basically because of my being of, of who I am, but also acknowledging the fact that I'm also doing everything that I am also because of my mom as well and, and her mom yeah. and her mom and, you know, and through the major yeah. line there. So it's, yeah, it's very relational to me too. And I, I take it again with a lot of responsibility. So it's, it's interesting. It's, it's just all very interesting with coming yeah. to being and learning and growing. So, yeah. You're someone to follow for sure. And <laughs> what your research, what, what your research comes up with. I'm really intrigued. Well, Mousy, I'll I'll be excited to share my dissertation when that starts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gotta get through comps first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, um, I was just wondering if there's anything that you hope uh, learners and uh, our colleagues from, from school can take with them from our conversation today. What are your thoughts? Um, well, certainly that um, what we really want people to, to understand is that there's no uh, pan-Indigenous worldview that, as you had mentioned before, we need to think of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit as uh, groups that have um, within them even differences and uniqueness and that um, we can't apply one kind of label uh, like the indigenous worldviews. And Blackstock was very, very um, intentional about saying there were commonalities and the, the commonalities were the ones that we sort of focused on, but that if we were to explore this in more depth, that we would find different worldviews, different approaches, and that um, we need to be careful, particularly speaking about Indigenous issues, that we're not using that pan approach, that that uh, the one one brush paints everybody kind of approach, which is um, what I would hope that our colleagues take away. I appreciate that, and I think that's a really important finding. But further aspect of relationality, because every single one of our experiences in of itself is unique because colonization has infected us in unique ways. So no mm -hmm. matter what, things will always be different. And this is also the fact too with cultures in of itself, there's over 500 different First Nations in, mm -hmm. in what we call Canada. Therefore, there's gonna be 500 different uh, cultural notions here too. So mm -hmm. it's going to be very different uh, for each and every single one of us. But that's what I also think too, in regards to what folks can leave with with this conversation that you and I are holding um which is to think in relational ways to think about your impact to think about your accountability also as a researcher and your responsibility but also think about your work in generational ways where yes you're writing this in maybe 2021 2022 2023 2024 your work will still have an impact even 10 years later because even the work we're reading and we just shared was made in 2007 and it still has an impact. So yeah. knowing that, acknowledging that, breathing that in is really important to the work as a researcher too. Absolutely. Well put. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Kitchi Mousy again, Lisa, for your time, um, for sharing everything that you have to it. It really does mean a lot to me that you're, you're a colleague, you're a peer, you're someone that I know I can go to as well now. And, and I'm very appreciative for, for our um, conversation today. Well, thank you so much for having me and, and having this great discussion and giving me the opportunity to learn from you and learn more. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, that's all we have for today, folks. Uh, thanks again for joining us. And again, feel free to follow us on um, Instagram, Twitter, at Educate the Earth. Uh, thank you so much again, and Kachi Marci.